Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. So the Buddha was the earliest to propose that the mind didn't have what the Greeks called a psyche, or in Latin is called an animus, or in Hindu systems are called an Atman, or other Indus Valley religions, an Atman, which is a central, unifying, organizing soul, spirit, inner identity that's constant. Uh, Buddhism set itself apart some 2,500 years ago from all the other major uh, philosophies and psychologies of its time by proposing that the mind is not comprised or centralized around one inner faculty, uh, such as thought. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. That was his the way he sort of centralized all human experience revolved around thought. For the Buddha, the human experience is comprised of a bunch of different things called uh, aggregates, khandas, and none of them have priority or centrality or define us. What we are is not so much a single interior spirit, or soul, or underlying identity, but a flux of different components. What are these components? Things like body sensations, feelings, which are muscular tensions and contractions in the front of your body, and also states of attention, moods, thoughts, perceptions of the world. The Buddha said that these aggregates sometimes have our attention, sometimes are foremost in mind, sometimes our awareness of the outside world is very little. Thoughts come to the fore, awareness of the body goes down, at other times the body's in pain, awareness of what's going on around us, and our thoughts are far less prominent than a physical sensation. Other times when you're in a beautiful vista, suddenly perceptions of the world, external sensations become far more dominant, and your thoughts become less prominent. So we are a little bit like uh, the metaphor used most common in Buddhism is a river. A river sometimes can be very clear, have nothing in it, just be water. Other times it can have twigs and rocks and mud and so forth. So that's pretty much akin to the human experience. There's no defining core element to it. So bear that in mind, that that was the Buddha's, one of the Buddha's great insights 2,500 years ago, and it took 2,400 years before Freud came around and uh, basically proposed what's called the triune mind, which is the idea that Freud as well said, there is no central organizing principle in the, in the mind that animates us, that, in fact, Freud said that there were three different systems in play, 
and neither of those, or none of those systems, I should say, ultimately define us. They're just these systems, and they each have a role to play, and you can't really get rid of any of them, but sometimes they become out of balance, and that's when there are troubles in life. So for Freud, these three systems were the id, the ego, and the superego. You probably heard those terms. Unfortunately, they've been completely bastardized in our current language to the point where people think that when somebody has an ego, that means they're grandiose and think a lot about themselves, which is not, not, I repeat, at all what an ego is. It's perhaps the most bizarre modern translation imaginable of a faculty in the mind that's not only necessary for our survival, but is actually a quality that when it works well is what makes us be able to live meaningful lives. So what are the roles of these three systems in your brain, according to Freud? Well, the id, which is a word that roughly means the it, uh, the id is uh, basically all of the core drives that we are born with, that are essentially hardwired into everybody's mental processes. Uh, they are essentially, Freud said at first, two drives. The first was the libidinal drive to discharge pleasure, to seek pleasure. And the second was the aggressive drive. And uh, it took a while, roughly about 40 years before object relation Freudians came around and they realized that Freud made a bit of a big oversight and didn't realize what we now know is that the core drive that all infants are born with is, of course, the drive to connect, to bond, to attach, to caregivers for our very survival. I don't know how Freud, it was by all accounts, and it's quite obviously a, a smarty pants, how he missed that, but he somehow managed to. And in fact, early Freudians got into a big fuss when object relations, uh, Freudians such as Naomi Klein and uh, Fairburn and Winnicott came around and said, well, yeah, it's not really pleasure. <laughs> Our core drive that we all are born with is to connect with others. So we all have these basic drives, and the role of the id is to accomplish them, uh, uh, express these drives, act them out as quickly as possible, damn the consequences. That's what Freud called the pleasure principle, that we all want to get our drives met as quickly as possible, and uh, that's what our core basic emotions push us towards. So the role of the ego is uh, essentially that capability in the mind that allows us to find appropriate ways to get our emotional needs met. The ego negotiates between our core drives and what's available out in the world. So for instance, if you have an overwhelming drive to express sexual pleasure or to externalize uh, libido, if you have an ego, 
it's not doing you any damage. Your ego is saying, yeah, the people around me right now, right now, not too appropriate. Let's wait until we find someone who is appropriate. If you have an aggressive urge, you feel angry, it's your ego that says, yeah, but the people I'm around, they didn't actually do anything harmful to me. I might want to wait until I'm actually in the presence of someone who's done something uh, aggressive to me or has acted in ways that don't respect my boundaries. Likewise, your ego's job is to make sure that you seek to connect, attach, and bond with adults that are appropriate. So your ego, if it's functioning, is not a bad thing. It's actually, in many ways, your best friend. It's getting your needs met in a way that won't cause you harm. Your ego is essential. Now sometimes, when uh, the drives have been building up in the background, there could be... Uh, the ego will need to develop what's called defenses. That's what Anna Freud uh, de devoted her life to, uh, enumerating all the different ways that we defend ourselves from our core drives to postpone them until we find an appropriate outlet. So how do we do that? We might, if we feel a strong, aggressive urge, or we might feel frightened, or we might feel a strong libidinal urge, we might postpone those urges through intellectualization, through repression, through denial, in other words, denying the, uh, that we even have those urges, repressing by drinking drugs, watching TV, social media. Uh, intellectualization is just thinking as a way to escape the body sensations that are seeking to be expressed. And there's many other forms of uh, defense mechanisms that defend from our underlying core drives. So it's worth noting that our defense mechanisms are not about defending us from other people. They're about defending us from those core emotional ingrained very strong impulses that sometimes can create um, uh, a lot of damage for us. For example, if we grew, if we grow up in a homophobic society, if you have same-sex attraction, you might for a while uh, repress those drives and it could lead to all forms of uh, repressive tendencies until you find safe people to act out your libidinal drives in a healthy, safe way where you won't get punished by an, uh, the society that you grow up in. Your ego helps you postpone drives until it's safe to act them out, or sometimes it sublimates. Sublimates your drives means, suppose you're a nun. <laughs> that might be hard to imagine, but you've taken a vow of celibacy. Why you would do that, I have no idea. But you've done that. And so you might act out your sexual drives, sublimate them through rocking. Nuns do a lot of rocking. <laughs> I saw a video. That's by some total research on this. But I immediately know, note, okay, these nuns are sublimating their sexual drives. It's clear. Uh, I saw a, a two-and-a-half-hour silent documentary about uh, Trappist monks in France 
called Into Silence or something like that, Into a Great Silence or something like that. And uh, it was a beautiful movie, but to, to sublimate their sexual desires, they did these weird physical things too uh, that were interesting to watch. So uh, you'll have to watch the movie to know what I'm talking about. So, um, okay, so that's what your ego does. Uh, and then there's your superego. So your superego is essentially an internal structure that maintains a sense of what societal obligations are, what the world expects of you. Why do we have this? Well, human beings are perhaps the most social species there is on the planet. We are a social species because our entire survival depends on our ability to uh, develop communities and work in small groups and collectives to survive. We didn't, as a species, have any of the body armor or physical capabilities to survive, so we depended upon, essentially, our ability to create tribes. And we survived for almost the entirety of our species' existence. If we've been around for, starting from the first version of Homo sapiens about 1.8 million years ago, roughly 1.75 million years was spent in hunter-gatherer collectives. And we, the way we survived was by forming those small groups. So it's essential that we developed to survive some inner faculty that would remind us of all the behaviors that we needed to do to stay well cemented with the tribe and all the behaviors that could lead to expulsion from the tribe. Because all, expulsion from your community or tribe for much of human species' existence would lead to death. If you weren't in a tribe, you would die. The superego is this interjection of all of the rules and things we believe we need to do to look good to other people. Unfortunately, here's the rub. The superego is established very, very, very young in life. It starts at around age one, when the development of it is, around the same time as attachment patterns start being ingrained. And guess who's in charge of creating your superego? Any guess? Yep. And for many of us, that's okay news. But for <laughs> roughly half of us, that's really bad news. Even if you're one of the lucky ones with secure parents who can create a reliable sense of love and attention, you still, as an infant, hear the word no 400 times a day. The parent, when it feels proud or happy or delighted by the child, generally doesn't use language that much. They simply convey their delight and their welcoming feelings through smiles, hugs, elated facial expressions and body language. But when the parent is stressed, is trying to stop the two-year-old from wandering off again and again and again and again and again, the caregiver has to rely on basically negative injunctions. No, stop, don't run, don't run into the street, don't hit your sister, don't tug the cat's tail, don't jump, don't, you know, grab for the food, put that away, we're in a supermarket, you can't choose what we're going to eat, etc. By the time a child 
gets to be a teenager, it hears the word no some 200,000 times. Now on top of that, not only is the dominant uh, languaging uh, no are negative, but also, in fact, uh, the brain has what's called negativity bias. We tend to remember negative experiences with five times the neural strength than we remember positive ones. So you're already primed to remember all of the negative experiences with five greater attention, five times greater attention. So by the time we start to be ready to go to kindergarten, and we're going to be doing now socializing on our own, that's when we rely the most on the superego, which is that inner voice in the head that tells us what not to do and what to do to make ourselves look good to others. It's the socializing voice in the head. And we are most likely to have a very negative voice that tells us to be polite, to be pleasing, to not speak loud, to be hardworking, to, to smile or to look serious or whatever the messages were around us, we will listen to that inner mom and dad, that inner socializing faculty, and we rely on it for self-motivation and also we rely on it to keep us accepted by peer groups, other kids, teachers, other adults. The, this right, this, I'm sorry, the superego is largely organized by the right hemisphere of the brain. Right hemisphere of the brain, it's appropriate that it organizes the superego because that's the hemisphere that's most concerned with rejection, most terrified of being outcast. It's the lobe of the brain that's far less language-based. The language it does have is far, the vocabulary is certainly more limited. It still plays a role in language. And this is what's interesting, is that the superego is a voice that's very similar to all the other thinking in your mind, but it's governed largely by your right brain, whereas the rest of your thinking is bilateral uses both left and right. It's far more adult. It's far more aware of your current capabilities. It's far more appreciative of all the skills and all the things you've accomplished in your life. But that inner voice that essentially speculates about how other people regard you, that was a internalization from very, very, very early developmental stages of life. What does that mean? Well, it means that despite how easy it is for the superego to sound exactly like the ego, in that they both can use language, they both can repeat uh, ideas in the head, they both even can create at times negative visuals, the right hemisphere is not based on current perceptions of your life. It's based on interjections of old fears that your parents had about you being rejected or looking bad to other people. The terrified or the frightened concerns of any parent that their child, when it goes off to school or goes out into the world, might represent itself poorly. And so the parents essentially ingrain this 
uh, repetitive, very, very fear-based concern. If other people don't like us, bad things will happen. And that other people are generally perfect, and we are not that there's something that we have to constantly be worried about in ourselves because our parents, when we're very young, constantly see us acting out on impulses and it's their job to provide us with uh, an ego function until we develop it. It's their job to stop us from acting out on our core drives. So the parent views the child as this wild force that's always getting itself in trouble, whereas other children and other adults are portrayed as largely skillful, self-controlled, uh, refined. And so we internalize that sense that there's something wrong with me, that if I'm not constantly on guard and worried about how I compare to other people, that I live up to other people, something really, really bad will happen. I'll get in trouble. And when, as children, we get in trouble with our parents, of course, it feels like a disaster. So in addition to these, these early established fear-based, uh, terrified of exclusion, the superego also has uh, another component, which is called the ego ideal, which is it creates a version of the ideal you. That's the you that you're always falling short of. That's the you that should have accomplished so much more. The ego ideal is a construct established very young at age by essentially language, interjected language with our parents, where our parents essentially say, I love it when you do this. I love it when you're like this. I, this is the you I want to see. So we create this uh, essentially this fabrication of there's this perfect me that I am somehow falling short of, not living up to. So the harsher at times our parents could be or the more stressed out they could be is to the degree as well that we will have interjected uh, voices that are very shaming. The right hemisphere uses social emotions to keep us in line, social emotions such as shame and guilt, and when we do well, it creates feelings such as pride. The more dysregulated our superego is, the more negative our self-esteem, the greater the preponderance of this socializing faculty in the brain, people will then develop compensatory strategies to shut it up. They will rely on competition, addiction, alcoholism, drugs to stop the self-conscious, despairing, hypercritical inner tyrant that basically says that, oh, why did I say that? People think I'm an idiot. They're going to fire me. None of my friends really like me oh, look, there was a party, I wasn't invited, that just goes to show nobody cares about me, and so forth. So to essentially try to control that, we develop compensatory strategies. One of the most common is grandiosity, of all things, to fight 
inner lack of esteem many clients I've worked with will then develop extreme grandiose fantasies of their self-worth to try to quiet that inner critic. It doesn't work, by the way. I'm sure no matter how much Trump feeds on his power, still the inner uh, behind the narcissist is always this wounded child who's uh, essentially hurt that daddy didn't give him enough attention and love. The superego, when it's dysregulated, is an old tape triggered by an exceptionally fear-based structure. It has unrealistic standards. It is immune, by the way, to logic or reasoning. No matter how much you try to sit and say, but I really am, you know, not as bad as you're telling me, that part of the brain, the right hemisphere, which essentially activates, uh, the theory goes, the superego, is not capable of reasoning. It's a part of the brain that essentially, after around the age four or five, the right hemisphere has its great growth spurt, its great day in the sun from age six months to five, and then it gradually seeds into the background creating emotions that encourage us to seek safety and security. Meanwhile, the left hemisphere, which is the much more conceptual, representational, focused, accumulating, guided, goal-oriented part of the brain, gains control roughly around age six. So, but it's always there. And whenever there's any setback in life, whenever there's any feeling of loneliness, whenever we're under stress, the superego can be triggered and it's always available there to tell us that we've fucked up, that we've blown it, that other people don't like us, that we're, something bad's going to happen to us because deep down inside nobody really likes us or cares about us, etc., etc. The Buddha called... Um, the id or the core emotional seeking for pleasure was tanha, but bawatana was his word for that ongoing fantasy that there's a better version of us that we need to become to find happiness. That there's something wrong with us and that there's somehow this better me that I have not lived up to and if I could only uh, take the right course, read the right book, hear the right podcast, if I could only, I don't know, wind up in the perfect relationship, there's something that, damn it, I'm doing wrong. And if I could only figure out what it is, I could become that better Josh and everything would be better. And that, for the Buddha, is Bawatana, And it's one of the principal sources of suffering. By the time we're an adult, we don't need the inner socializing faculty to keep us either motivated or to keep our behaviors regulated. Our egos are fully developed by that point. And also we have a part of the brain called the striatum, which is the habit part. We develop routines. Even if you didn't have that voice in your head that says, what's the matter? You're late. They're going to be angry with you you still would get up out of bed, you'd still brush your teeth, put on your clothes, go to work, 
because by this time in your life you've deeply ingrained those routines and it wouldn't be possible for you to simply put them aside. But we still somehow, because it was so dominant in early life, we so relied on our superegos to survive and look good and maneuver and negotiate through the complexities of early social environments, we've come to rely on this voice that says, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? Why did you say that? Why are you, you know, not doing better? The role of adult transition from early maladaptive coping strategies is to be able to discern the difference between voices of the ego, which are regulating and helping us find appropriate outlets for core drives, versus the residues from early dependent relationships where essentially we had terrified adults telling us, no, don't do that, you'll look terrible, other kids won't like you, just be polite, be quiet, smile, just look good. How do we tell them apart? They both use language. They both sound like us in our heads. It's very easy to confuse ourselves with these inner voices that are shaming, guilt-inducing, or sometimes pump us up with feelings of pride when it's not exactly warranted. So there's a few ways. I'll go through them, and then that's what our meditation will be about. One, try to visualize someone who's a close friend, who loves you, who cares about you, who accepts you for who you are today. Hold an image of that person in your mind and then see if in any way that image of your friend is in any way compatible with the voice that is speaking to you in your mind. If you can't imagine someone who is caring and loving, who accepts you for who you are, saying the thought, then it is not your ego. It is actually a maladaptive, superegoic function that is a residue from childhood that you no longer need guiding you through life. It's something that relies, again, on shame and fear to keep you in line. Two... Visualize yourself or visualize a friend and imagine yourself saying what your, your thoughts are telling you. Ask yourself, would I ever say this to someone I love or care about? Could I imagine going up to a close friend that I care about and when they're feeling stressed out saying, by the way, I just wanted to let you know right now while you're stressed out that nobody really likes you that much. <laughs> that deep down inside they're just putting up with you and that frankly some of us think you're a failure. <laughs> if you can't imagine saying that to someone then again it's an early tape recording that was implanted roughly between the ages of two and three a recording uh, of a stressed parent that was at their wits end 
that because it was a negative, frightening experience, your right hemisphere latched onto, and now it's become a tape in the brain, and it's not helping you anymore. Uh, three, mindfulness. When we are triggered by uh, this, uh, voices that are activated by right hemispheric functions, there's a far greater somatic stress in the body than when we're using bilateral thought, which is higher order thinking. Like when you're planning a trip, or when you're uh, <coughs> think you're strategizing about a project at work, or when you're planning something creative. If you sc scan your body, you'll probably find that your stomach is not in a knot. You'll probably find that your throat is not tight. That's because the left hemisphere has far greater control over the vagal vagus nerve, which runs down the front of your body. But if you are being held captive by your superego, by the shaming negative aspersions that sometimes can come about, you will find that the vagal vagus nerve will tighten. Your stomach will become taut. Your throat will feel like it's become gripped. There'll be maybe clenching in the jaw. Maybe there'll be a tightness or a hollowness in the chest. But you will have a vagal contraction because that's what the right hemisphere does whenever it triggers thought. And four is the two lawyers technique. And before we have our meditation, I'm going to give you a little example of the two lawyers technique because we're not going to do it in the meditation. So for a moment, close your eyes. And I want you to bring to mind your inner prosecutor. This is a trial in your brain. And like in all trials, your inner prosecutor is trying to get an indictment of you. This is the voice that tells you everything you've done that you fucked up, every way you've fallen short, everything about you that's unlovable, everything that's unlikable, in every way you have uh, messed up. So think of three of the most familiar self-criticisms or self-negations that you hear and just don't edit them, don't fight back, just allow the inner prosecuting attorney in your brain state the three reasons why you haven't lived up to your full potential in life. So now the prosecutor has finished their argument and now comes on your inner defense attorney. And picture someone that you feel safe with, who's, who cares about you, loves you, is someone who appreciates you, someone who knows you very well, 
And they might not need to know all the arguments that they will present, but just someone who really cares about you. And then, what would the three things that you would want someone to know about yourself that would paint an entirely different picture than what the prosecutor has painted. Think of the times that you've cared for others, that you've been altruistic, that you've taken on challenges or embraced opportunities that were difficult, that you've developed tools to help others. Just think of those three things. So when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Now, the three arguments that the prosecutor in your mind, here's the magic trick. (laughs) The three arguments that the prosecutor in your mind came up with are based on speculation. They're based on guesswork. They're essentially either guessing that other people are better than you or don't have the same struggles that you have or it's based on the speculation that you've made a mistake but the speculation is that nobody else has made the same mistake the same error the same thing that you repeat in your head as something that makes you unlovable the prosecutor is sort of pointing that or presenting that as if you are unique in having made that error or having that flaw. But in fact, that's not the case. That's a distortion. On the other hand, all of the three things that your defense attorney said are absolutely true. Are absolutely 100% true about you. The voice that's been disparaging you is based on a speculation, a unfounded belief that somehow the mistakes we make are unique, that are ours alone, that we've somehow not lived up to normal human standards. On the other hand, the three things you've come up with to essentially uh, build up your esteem are not in any way based on any speculation at all. They're things you've actually done. Just bear that in mind. So now we're going to do a meditation that will help us discern the difference between normal thinking and the inner critic. Okay, so closing the eyes and just find a really, really, really upright 
Spine's relaxed. If you like rock with your eyes closed from side to side, forward and back in circles, and then without any supervision by the thinking mind, here's where we're going to ask the right hemisphere to be completely in control. Just ask the embodied mind to find, to come to a stop and find what for it feels like a good, upright, relaxed, comfortable position. If it's not too uncomfortable, gently tilt your head slightly back like you're looking at a tall building and that will help prevent slouching. When you slouch, there's invariably neck pain, So let's take a few breaths just to arrive. Take a full in-breath through the nose like you're smelling a flower and lift your shoulders up and just like you're trying to touch your ears, just hold those shoulders up for a moment. And as you breathe out through the mouth, drop your shoulders down like you're putting down two 60-pound suitcases. You've just landed and you're dropping your suitcase in the car and you don't have to carry them around anymore and your arms can just fully fall by your side. And if it feels good, gently pull the shoulders slightly back to open up your chest, but not too much, just whatever feels right for you. And let's have a, a second in-breath smelling the flower and pulling in your belly while you smell the flower and then holding it and then breathing out the candle with your mouth softening the belly. That's great. Just allowing a soft belly to receive the breath from here on. And then for the third in-breath again, smelling the rose, as it were, and squinch the muscles in the face, squinch locked jaw, tight eyes, squinch nose, forehead, and then breathe out. And just release the jaw, soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, release the muscles in the forehead, just allow the Mouth to fall into, if possible, without it being forced, a Mona Lisa type smile, if that's available. If not, don't worry, we just allow your face to find a natural expression. And now we're going to try to establish the body or the state of being, I should say, that's associated with arriving in life. When you arrive at a destination that you really have been looking forward to, 
you've put down your bags earlier and you've gotten out of the car and you go to a really comfortable seat by a beautiful vista and the first thing that happens after just doing that body relaxing we just did where your shoulders relax, your stomach releases, your face softens, melts, the next thing that happens is you give yourself permission to not plan or think about anything in the future or the past. You give yourself permission to not do anything, to just relax. You have no desire to be anywhere else. You've arrived at a place that you've been longing to. One of those wonderful moments in life where you just give yourself permission to fully land. And finally, you've got no one to worry about. You don't have to people please. You don't have to get anyone's approval, this is your vacation. You don't have to in any way worry about how other people regard you. So in other words, you've got nothing to do Nowhere to go. No one to please. This is your time. Just fully welcome it. Now that we've arrived, we want to stay present. We want to stay here at this wonderful time in our life. We want to truly appreciate it. And we do that by not wandering away. Most of the time in life, the way we wander away is by latching on to a thought that takes us off into a virtual reality about the past or about a possible future. We wander away from the places we love the most, the people we love the most, by allowing our minds to whisk us away. So your job is simply to stay here. That's all we do. If a thought comes up to you, treat it like somebody who wants to Get your attention when you're relaxing and you just give yourself permission to say, I hear you, but not now. I'll come back to you later. It's like a salesperson that's wandered into your favorite spot and you don't want to be rude but you don't want them to grab hold of your attention. You just say, 
thank you, but I'm okay. And if a thought somehow gets past your defenses and you wind up letting go of the present moment, the sounds that surround you, the feeling of your body breathing, those are the present time experiences, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids, the feeling of just being alive right now. But if one of those thought salespeople grabs you and pulls you away into a, an inner virtual reality, just let it go. Bring, it, bring your awareness back. No anger, no frustration, no impatience, nothing but feeling good that you're developing awareness of what's going on presently, internally. That's mindfulness. So each time you wander away, just as soon as you become aware, just bring your awareness back to the present sensations that are happening naturally. The sounds of cars from the street, the feeling of your body breathing.
So at this point, just allow the sensations of the present moment to drift a little into the background. They're still there. And now welcome, if it's still available, see if you can bring it back to the foreground, that inner critic, What is the thought that we most punish ourselves with? Or the most punishing thought, I should say, that arises in our awareness? What is the greatest indictment that we hold over ourselves? Just allow it to be there. And now see, while you hold this thought in mind, visualize someone who cares about you deeply, someone who loves you, a friend who accepts you for who you are, someone who you feel relaxed and at home with. Could you ever imagine this person saying this to you? Is the thought in any way compatible with the present time friends that you rely on? If you disclosed this thought to your friend, what would they tell you? Could you ever imagine saying this to someone that you love? So while this negative thought is present, now scan down your body, starting with your face, then the throat, the chest, and the belly, the shoulders, if you like, and just find the area that's tight 
somewhere when you are hearing the negative early tapes in your mind, invariably the vagal vagus nerve contracts, your stomach gets tight, your throat, maybe the forehead or the jaw locks. Find the tightest sensation in the front of your body and breathe into it and soften it and relax it. And finally, now let's switch to a different kind of thought. Just visualize someplace you'd like to visit or travel to, someplace you've always wanted to go. Where would it be? Who would you travel with? How long would you stay? And while this inner image and idea is playing out in your mind, scan again down the front of your body and see if you can tell the difference between this body that occurs when both hemispheres of the brain are working in tandem versus the body you felt only moments earlier that was triggered when one hemisphere is dominant. If you maintain some degree of internal awareness, over time it becomes very easy to tell the difference between 
the skillful inner voices and the unskillful ones. The unskillful ones always tighten and contract and create a defensive, armored body. So, in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl. And the request is that you, when you hear the sound, just open your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you. And the practice is to integrate sight back into your awareness so that you don't allow sight to push awareness of your body, your breath, and the feelings we've been working with. Don't allow sight to push the rest of your awareness into the background. Balance your awareness so you know how you're feeling. You know what's going on internally and you know what's going on externally. That's a mindful, balanced, integrated state of awareness. 